listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking with Hannah Scandera, the former Secretary of Education of New Mexico. Prior to moving to New Mexico, she served as Deputy Education Commissioner for Florida, as well as Deputy Chief of Staff at the U.S. Department of Education. Hannah learned a lot about agency and initiative from an early age. She began homeschooling in the sixth grade and continued on through grade 12. Hannah also began taking courses at her local community college at the age of just 14. In today's episode, Hannah shares how her education experiences taught her how to be a self-learner, provided her with the curiosity needed, and helped her find the drive for what matters. It's likely what accelerated her through her expansive career. Let's listen in as Tom and Hannah discuss student agency, new education pathways, and employability. Hannah Skandera, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Where'd you go to high school? I was actually home educated. And, no kidding. Uh, yes, I grew up in, in, uh, in California and uh, was home educated through high school. Went to well, a, that, seemed, that seemed to work pretty well. <laughs> um, for me, it was a, a great match. Why? Well, um, at the time we began homeschooling, it was supposed to be a two-month endeavor. I have three siblings, so there are four of us. We were moving towards the end of the school year, and um, it was, you know, it was just to get us to the next spot and get get us in, back into school. I just just for a little background, uh, immediately told my parents they had ruined my life. I was social. I was a good athlete, and I competed for my grades. And I would no longer be popular, and I would be very uncool. And uh, they responded, we're sure you're going to be just fine for two months. But uh, after the end of two months, uh, I think things began to change. For me, it was the opportunity to be a self-learner from the vantage point of what are your motivations, your curiosity, and your drive towards uh, what matters. And it really it, it forced a decision for me of, of, frankly, just the core of what, what makes me tick when it comes to learning. I don't, I don't think it's for everyone, but certainly for me, it was an amazing um, opportunity to grow. Um, my parents were incredibly creative. I was in a community college by the time I was 14 and had a lot of different extra avenues for growth and opportunities. So it was a, definitely uh, a great match for uh, preparing me for my future, from my, at least from my vantage point. So how, how many years did you do that? Was it two or three? No, it was from sixth grade through twelfth grade. Wow! Um, so, and yes. What, what um, about those um, social aspects? There's some people that would argue um, you you miss out on the social aspects of learning. How did your parents and family supplement that? Yeah, my parents and I give them a, t- a ton of credit. Incredibly proactive on giving myself and my my brother and sisters great opportunities to be up and out and learning in very different ways um, across the board. For example, in uh, Santa Rosa, which is where I grew up, uh, we, my brother and I both worked out with a local high school and did track and cross country uh, and, and worked out with them every day. We were under the umbrella of a small parochial school. So all of our testing was done through uh, that, but there were a lot of social and academic opportunities uh, through those venues. Um, I mentioned I started going to the local community college as a freshman and taking things like biology and Spanish. And at the time it was called technology. 
um, <laughs> and uh, and different courses that uh, my parents felt like they were less equipped to to lead and and teach. So they were pretty creative. I have to do a, a little bit of ant brag. My my nephew, my oldest nephew, um, has been home educated actually his entire. Um, education career, and he is now at MIT with a full ride. So um, there's a little bit of a tradition now of of uh, exposure to great opportunities and and opportunities emerging based on that foundation. Yeah, that's um, that's such an interesting background. I think now that so many of us are interested in helping young people build uh, agency, ownership of their own learning, this ability to take initiative and, you know, manage themselves and their tasks that there's things that we could learn from the very best of home education. And it sounds like you had a, a good experience. I did. Uh, and I, I, like I said, I want to be really clear. I don't think it's for everyone. I think what's for everyone is that agency piece and the ownership and the opportunity to match with what's best for Right. So I guess my point was um, how and what can we learn from from the best of those experiences and incorporate into into public education um, uh, that same increasing opportunities, really, from kindergarten to 12th grade, the ability for kids to to gain more self-control, self-management uh, and that sense of, of agency and drive. And it sounds like you had the benefit of, um, of enough structure, but uh, uh, enough opportunity to um, take advantage of a lot of interesting opportunities that were teed up. So how to do more of that in the public system, I guess. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think that's the right point. You became uh, a deputy education commissioner in Florida and then were a chief in New Mexico. I'd love to know um, why and how you you got into education policy. Yeah. So um, my senior year in high school, I started a nonprofit with um, another woman that um, where we were in schools every day, um, sixth through twelfth grade classrooms for six years straight, um, and it was a peer education program, uh, training young people to talk about decision making and life skills and and identifying kind of pathways to where, what you want to be when you grow up and the decisions you make and how they impact those decisions. Very powerful. And like I said, that opportunity to be in classrooms every day and realizing um, that education is a, such an important space and place. And we all know that, but I think I just got to see it hands-on, real, and got it really excited about the difference education can make and, and wanted to be a part of that and frankly, wanted to be a part of that and have deep impact. And, uh, you know, I believe every generation is, you know, we're, we're prepping for the future of America and wanted to be a part of that uh, transition. So after uh, being in that program for about six years, I graduated high school, went to college, uh, was a track and cross-country athlete, coached at the collegiate level, but continued to develop out this program in partnership with another woman. And um, after six years, and work, working in that space, went to grad school, and then was nominated to go to Hoover, the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where I was co-author and research fellow um, on several books, but one book in particular was on education. 
And at that point in time, I was actually, I might've been one of the youngest fellows <laughs> at the Hoover Institution and certainly the youngest woman uh, fellow. I was, I think, 29 and was uh, teaching at the graduate level and I'd co-authored a few books and Schwarzenegger got elected. And someone said, you should uh, you know, consider working in the administration. And I was fortunate and blessed and had the opportunity to go be assistant secretary and then undersecretary under Governor Schwarzenegger in California first for uh, two years. And then, um, and just became passionate about uh, continuing to really open up those avenues and opportunities for every child, regardless of their zip code. Um, moved to Florida as deputy commissioner under Governor Jeb Bush. And then uh, at the U.S. Department of Education was the deputy chief of staff, uh, staff and senior policy advisor to Margaret Spellings. Um, so um, just an in- incredibly rich opportunities all along the career pathway that I wouldn't trade for anything and certainly were uh, learning moments and opportunity moments, uh, some painful, some amazing, right, whenever <laughs> you're trying to create change. Um, but then went into the private sector, actually, for a few years um, in the higher ed space and then transitioned to the secretary for education for the governor in New Mexico for seven years. So um, really rich opportunities and incredible gratitude to so many people who I got to work with and who went before me and great teams that I got to work um, in conjunction with. So New Mexico was an interesting experience, uh, both locally and just given the national context that you were dealing with. You you were chief during the end of NCLB, and as that really unwound and became the new uh, ESSA, maybe we can start with some of the local issues. Um, what did you find there, and what what did you really try to accomplish? So um, I love the state of New Mexico. It's so rich in its diversity. Just for a little perspective, uh, 75% of the students there are Hispanic or Native American, and about 72% uh, live below the poverty line. They're free and reduced uh, price lunch in the education terminology. And so it presents an opportunity for education, maybe more than other places I had had the opportunity to work. And what I found was... Uh, as I said, a really rich place in space, but a, a space that had not uh, embraced high expectations for all students. And I credit Governor Susana Martinez, who basically declared, "That's that is not okay and enough. We're going to believe that every child can learn, and whatever it takes, we're going to pursue that." And that was um, that was a tough tough fight. It wasn't a popular one. Um, there was a pretty deep entrenched. Um, embracing of, and I'll just say this, low expectations for some kids. And in fact, there was a a boldness to actually say that, well, those kids can't learn. And so there was kind of a upfront, um, you know, battleground around a paradigm first and foremost. And then what are those actions that follow around opportunities between choice? Um, When I left, we had over 10% of our schools were um, choice schools, not all good. We were closing some at the same time. Um, We had um, higher expectations for all students. We raised the expectations for graduation from an eighth grade expectation um, to uh, a college and career ready expectation. So lots of um, raising of expectations and pushing on mindsets um, uh, as a first, as a starting point. You um, lived through and helped influence really the 
sort of end of, of NCLB and the shift to, to ESSED, what's your take in your, your really your 20-year policy experience? Now, uh, the majority of it was during this unusual period of federal, of high federal control and high federal investment. And you served as a chief when the, the feds were sort of exiting that role uh, in terms of policy control and also in investment and, and the move back to more state control. Uh, do you see that generally as a positive move? So I think there's a tension in this that actually across America today we're grappling with. At the end of the day, when we look at, in my opinion, America's history, we see this tension and this, uh, and, and it's, I think it's a tension worth stewarding. You know, where, where are the, what are the right boundaries for um, federal um, uh, intervention and or uh, vision or uh, expectation? And when do, do what, where do you hand that off? Because we know there are local, there are local dynamics that are really important and rich and we should be building on them and be responsive to them that are, and I know this, you know, firsthand from working at state and the federal level, the systems are not agile. When you implement a system, it's, you know, there's an element of one size fits all. Now, when it comes to expectations for kids, I don't think that's a bad thing. We want all kids, uh, we shouldn't have different expectations for, for different kids. Um, however, you know, creating the space for creativity, entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism, and local responsiveness is also incredibly important. And so I, I think we're in this space seeing a pendulum swing. And the question is, can we steward that pendulum? puts a lot of responsibility on state leaders and, and district leaders. Um, and, and, but it's also an opportunity. And I think we'll see in some spaces that there are leaders who seize that responsibility and opportunity and create incredible opportunities for kids that might've been more challenging under a, a more, uh, a, a more enforced framework. But I will also say I have deep concerns when we look across the country right now and, kind of a scaling back um, around uh, the uh, belief that every child can learn and that we should have high expectations for all kids. So definitely attention. Hard to get this right, Hannah. I, you know, we'd, we've both been in this space for a couple decades and my work at the Gates Foundation really was around embracing this um, all kids college ready, the notion that kids at least ought to have optionality when they leave high school in terms of what their post-secondary learning would look like. And that kind of turned into college for all. And then it kind of turned into um, a, a narrowed version of that with a, a focus on basic skills and standardized tests. And it sort of swamped uh, all the interesting student-centered um applied learning that was was happening so how to as as you've been advocating how to maintain this um, high expectations for all students but uh, do it in ways that are really engaging for students and um, leveraging teacher talents and mindful of local opportunities it's um, it's hard from a policy perspective to get these uh, the balance right isn't it it really is. The way I like to think about it, I'll tell on myself, um, I'm not proud of this, but I, I don't know how the dynamics are real, to your point. Um, 
at the end of the day, when you're implementing high standards, um, accountability uh, frameworks, et cetera, in a state, for example, because those are often uphill battles, <laughs> you you make them everything to get them through, whether it's using the bully pulpit. Thing. The problem is they're not everything. And so when you finally get them implemented and you don't have nirvana for children the next day, people start wondering if, you know, it was all a mistake. And what I would say is, well, if they're everything, it's a mistake. If they're a foundation piece that then says now there's a springboard for that innovation, et cetera, but it, there is a, there's a floor, if you will, right? So we've got, the, we've got that foundation or floor. How do we build uh, and move forward and really be responsive and agile, especially as our, as our world is changing and the skill sets that are needed today, et cetera? I think there's a tension in that. And um, it's a tension that is difficult, but we've got to fight for it um, because our, our America's future is dependent on it. Um, our friend Tim Taylor often says uh, that, you know, a high level of, of literacy is really table stakes today. And we, we know that we need to pay more attention to success skills, to, uh, to college or to career awareness. But let's not forget that uh, a high level of communication and problem solving ability is really table stakes for any of these options. Right. That's right. And uh, we're so impatient <laughs> uh, and as we should be in the sense of an urgency for our kids. But um, there, there is a certain perseverance and patience in the midst of this urgency to be responsive. That, that, you know, once again, that tension of recognizing you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater or you lose it all. Uh, Hannah, I would love to talk about Pathways to Tomorrow. It's a, an initiative that you launched. Was it about a year ago? Yes, it was March of, of uh, 2018. And t- tell us what you were uh, trying to accomplish with that. So um, very, you know, very related to our, our conversation we've been having up to this point. I was looking across, I'd stepped down as the uh, Secretary for Education in New Mexico. And between the political divides that we were seeing where a lot of um, the, the coalitions and, and relationships that have been built in, particularly in the education space, were definitely fragile at best, some of them breaking a bit around political tensions and felt like we were getting entrenched on, on what I would call defense at best, uh, once again at best, when it comes to the what, um, what we've termed for a long time as education reform. Sometimes I think those words have not become, um, you know, uh, positive words, but go with me in knowing that, you know, the, the desire to transform a system and with all the, the, the tensions on the horizon, it, it looked to me like we were going to play defense and you don't win for kids on defense. And so, and we weren't, we weren't t- seizing the opportunity of the moment to be locally and regionally responsive in a way that I thought, I think we can and should. Um, and so wanted to launch this pathway to tomorrow. It's not an organization. It is really an initiative calling for, to pull together across our country, but locally, right? And, and to generate new ideas that are innovative and responsive and build on this foundation of high standards, et cetera, but also recognize that we've got to look ahead. Um, I also, and you know this well, we had, I think, 36 gubernatorial candidates running at the time. And I don't think there were any education governors. And if we compared to that to maybe 10, 15 years ago, that would have not been the case. We had economic governors, and so also asking, how do we begin to be responsive 
to the governor uh, governance that is here that's saying we need we we've got we've got to have students ready to be employed and be employable, et cetera. So did a call for proposals um, with the intent of um, a local and responsive and innovative ideas to bring to the table. 39 states were represented and, and responding. We had 240 proposals represented from urban, rural, and suburban. Incredibly diverse um, set of proposals, 75 partner organizations. So it was a really rich um response. Maybe, maybe you could summarize the, the call for proposal. What, what were the goals that you were asking people to respond to? Basically, we said, we want to pr- bring your innovative ideas that are locally responsive, that you think are important as we look ahead in education, that, give, that provide um, um, opportunities and ways forward in the education space. And what was fascinating is there were four key themes that emerged out of these 240 proposals. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and they won't surprise you, Tom, they were very, uh, we're hearing them all over the place, but it was just a, it, to me, it was very, as, as divided as our country seems to be, the interesting piece was this is 39 States, you know, like I said, urban, suburban and rural voices, parents, teachers, um, entrepreneurs and elite universities all responding and we still had four clear themes. And I think that was really um, exciting just to give a little bit more color. We asked, we did policy boot camps. So folks who might not know how to put their, you know, they have a day job and they don't regularly put their ideas on paper around education and innovation. Uh, we gave an opportunity to kind of, this is how you might propose something. We did a very clear three page proposal request. So it was not onerous because we wanted new voices um, and uh, ideas in the space. Um, and now our winners, we had 24 winners, over $430,000 in investment to, to help these winners take their ideas to what we're calling impact plans. Impact plans are taking these ideas to scale. What would it look like? What would it take to really game change your community or your state with this idea? And our goal is to see these impact plans become uh, impact, impact on the ground. And so we're mid-stride in that uh, process right now. Sounds like the big winners were uh, Kentucky and Iowa. Could you, you describe what their proposals included? Yes. Um, so our, our biggest winner, we had an innovation award. And um, just encourage folks to check out Pathway to Tomorrow on, online and see um, incredibly rich ideas and, and so many great people participating uh, the winners, uh, and you, you talked about this earlier, we started this conversation about student agency. And uh, the winners basically are putting forth ideas around students, not just voice, not, and I don't mean that in a, a disparaging way, but how do we truly allow students to begin to have uh, action and agency in policy and in their education? And uh, they both are, are, both our winners are top winners of $100,000 Innovation Prize um, had different pathways for truly building out student um, agency in a, in a powerful way. So we're excited to see them take that to scale and move forward. Let's, um, let's move to a, a, a couple other uh, timely topics. Higher education is really under fire in America. I think America is called BS on higher ed. They're sick of paying so much. They're sick of seeing 
college graduates uh, moved back into to the basement at home. Uh, I, I noticed you blurbed uh, Ryan Craig's uh, book called A New You, which I think was the most provocative education book of of 2018. What what's the what's the higher ed or post secondary solution? Well, I think part of the post secondary solution is the recognition that we need lots of solutions. And that's the the one size fits all. And the way we have known higher education, let me be clear, I'm a huge advocate um, of higher education, certainly a a, um, participant. Um, And but there's a clear misalignment of higher education's promise for many um, and the delivery for students of today and the future. And I I think uh, the push that Ryan Craig brings uh, and just makes a compelling case for a transformative innovation in higher education that uh, provides many opportunities and pathways right. for filling up and being prepared for success in yeah, life. At least a, a stronger focus on employability. I, you know, I found as I think about books of the last two years, I like Ryan's book, who argues about a hard sprint to a good first job, and Fareed Zakaria's book, uh, in defense of of liberal arts. And I, I interestingly find truth in both of those. The, right. The, the question is how, again, to how, how to get to the end both. Cause I, I'd, I'd, I'd like every young person to have some secondary and post-secondary opportunities to study the liberal arts and to hone their critical thinking and their knowledge of the world. And I also want them to be employable. So how, how do we help more young people get the benefits of both? I couldn't agree with you more. And, and the, the challenge and the opportunity is, to, and you, you know, we've named it several times, stewarding that tension, right? Not throwing all the opportunities for our traditional um, post-secondary opportunities out the window, but recognizing that some of the limitations and, and beginning to create more, uh, from my vantage point, more pressures and market opportunities uh, around innovation in that space. But I think if we just, I mean, to me, when I think about America and the awesome country that we live in with all our flaws, I'm, I am incredibly proud that I think that is part of our rich heritage. And I, do, I think there's a stewardship going forward of that tension of entrepreneurialism and, and capitalism and the private uh, sector and market, along with um, the responsibility of um, civic engagement and being prepared to be a part of and stewarding um, our, our, our country as a citizen. You know, the, the, this tension for me suggests that at both the secondary and post-secondary level, we just need much more personal, much more localized guidance, that we need to help learners to walk alongside them and help them make good uh, good choices. And uh, we, we can uh, build systems that ask young people to delve deeply into liberal arts and we can help them be employable on these. It is doable, but it does require uh, much better guidance systems than we see uh, typically in high schools and colleges today. And I'm, I'm glad around the edges to see that changing. Do you see some of that? Definitely. Interestingly enough, just going back to pathway to tomorrow or P2T for short, they were, um, I said there were four themes, but there are also some takeaways that emerge through the themes. And you hit it on the head, just a clear push to blend the K-12 higher ed and workforce preparation opportunities 
kind of blur those lines and get out of our silos, which I think, you know, um, we're seeing a lot around the edges right now that's healthy and good and entrepreneurial. I, we also saw just a clear signal of increases in pu- public-private partnerships. And I think we'll see more of that to get to um, some of this healthy balance and a shift away from what I'll call quality control to quality assurance. And what I mean by that is it's not just the question, do you have the diploma and the piece of paper, but do you have the skills to actually do what you need to do? So I, I think we're going to, we'll see a lot of emerging opportunities. I think it's exciting, but there's also, as I said, some stewardship in that. And so I'm, uh, and the last thing I would mention too, that we haven't talked about, and I'm sure it's a conversation for another time, but it, I think it, it, it gets into this space, Tom, and that is how do we, um, our traditional pathways for building social capital um, from our history seem to be, uh, we're moving away from those traditional spaces. So how do we also think about the role of social capital in the stewardship of our education and employability opportunities as well? Well, it's so important. We know that something like uh, 85% of jobs are through a, a, a social network uh, so how to help young people not not only build employability skills, but, you know, graduate with that LinkedIn profile, knowing 100 community leaders. Uh, we, we have to make more explicit that role of helping young people build a network as well as the skills to truly make them employable. Couldn't agree with you more. The Line is the name of an interesting uh, policy journal that you edit. Uh, what? Why do you think it's important that we create a, a civic discourse today? Well, I think in many uh, venues, we're seeing an erosion of our civil discourse. And so the line is an education journal that, yes, I'm proud to be the editor-in-chief. Um, and it's committed to, in the K-12 space, um, to facilitate uh, a, a conversation um, that's civil, um, uh, around the key issues in education today. Our next issue, this is a shameless plug, um, ask the question, are, is education delivering on its promise? And we have, uh, Margaret Spellings, former U.S. Secretary for Education, and John King both weighing in, David Coleman at the College Board, Ryan Craig, lots of great, um, pieces and hopefully provocative that, uh, pieces that come from different perspectives to really lay out you know, what are some of our values and how do our values manifest in everyday life when it comes to what we expect and hope for from our education system? We're at such an interesting time in history where, where on one hand, a lot of people are worried about the automation economy, the innovation economy, and the dislocation that will come with it. But it's also clear that there's never been more opportunity in human history. There's never, from that standpoint, never been a better time to be a teenager in terms of your ability to code an app or to launch a campaign or to start an impact organization. Uh, but it, it does mean that as society, we're facing more complicated challenges on a more frequent basis. And so how to facilitate these conversations so that it feels like the line is a, a small part of that solution. But we we also were together at America Succeeds and and I think both appreciate their effort to try to create community conversations. So it's both physical conversations, local conversations, as well as these online conversations that seem important. Couldn't agree with you more. I feel like we're seeing, you know, 
Um, we need more of it, but we're, we are beginning to see these opportunities through um, different um, organizations. And that was really at the heart of P2T as well. Like where are the ideas that we can see in a, in a localized environment? America succeeds in the U.S. Chamber pushing on that. You, through these different conversations, the line and, and its commitment. So, and I'm sure that's just a fraction. So I think it's a, yeah. it's heartening and also still a heavy push to, to continue. Yeah, what's heartening for us is that where we see these conversations happening locally, really good solutions are built. So people that trust the process and commit to a community dialogue are, uh, and, and working in partnership, as you've argued, are, are building really interesting uh, pathways for kids and communities. So we're we're excited about the work you've been doing at uh, at P2T and the and the civil dialogue that you're trying to create through the line. Thanks for uh, being on our podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Tom. A big thanks to Hannah for joining us on the podcast today. We appreciate her thoughts on how to build agency and how to teach students to create ownership of their own learning pathways. We're excited about the civil dialogue that Hannah is creating, including the initiative Pathways to Tomorrow, which is focused on transforming the current education system, calling on people to come together locally, generating new ideas, and creating a road forward, all under the umbrella of how to prepare students for the workforce of tomorrow. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And of course, for all things innovations and learning, be sure to check out our blog at gettingsmart.com. That's it for today, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. And for the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica signing off.